cat, could you be cool for like five seconds? No, you're a good kitty. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly-ish podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. Today we're bringing you a very special blast from the past. An old school episode where we just talk about a goddamn book. That's right. But because we're out of Harry Potter books, we're reading the next best thing, Rainbow Rowell's 2015 novel, Carry On. So, without any further ado, let's head to the sorting chat. Do you want to maybe just start off by establishing as a baseline the fact that uh, I love this book deeply and profoundly and you didn't like it? Yeah. (gasps) So, to be clear, I didn't love it, um, which I think is an important distinction, uh, because I didn't dislike it and I liked parts of it a great deal um but I found it left me uh deeply unsatisfied and a little bit miserable and even as you were going through all the things that you loved about it I just kept thinking about all the things that like really super bummed me out about it and how much I don't like this book so never mind I take it back I don't like it I don't like this book I regret reading it I wish I had just read fangirl and left it at that um I did. I loved Fangirl. And when we talk about, like, I mean, whatever, we'll talk about it now. But I, f- I found that a lot of the things that I, that left me feeling really wanting about this book um, are the opposite with Fangirl. Like, without getting into details about Fangirl, I just found that, like, that story wrapped up really coherently mm-hmm. and really neatly mm-hmm. and sort of satisfied all of the things that I needed to happen mm-hmm. in it. Um, whereas this one is just like a bunch of loose threads, oh, yeah. a bunch of unresolved interpersonal conflict, a bunch of misery, a bunch of sadness, a bunch of heartbreak, a bunch of mothers who never get to talk to their sons, a bunch of sons who never get to hear from their mothers, a bunch of people who died completely and utterly needlessly, and siblings who don't get to uh, ever reconnect with that sibling who is like the only family they have left. It just like, it felt like the stuff that I liked about it, I had the opportunity to like and enjoy for about 100 pages, maybe like 300 in this 7,000 page long book. And then... And then it was like, oh, just kidding. You thought this is going to be like a beautiful romance. Well, actually, it's just about all of the sadness and all of these people dying and all of these people who are already dead, who never get to talk to the living and the people who are alive and who feel deeply unfulfilled and lost and alone and never get to have any kind of any kind of reassurance that they are loved by someone in the afterlife who's still thinking about them and trying to get through to them and so on and so on and so on. Um, it is a beautiful love story, but it is also all of those other things. It's also really sad. We uh, should start off by um, sort of contextualizing the relationship between this book and Harry Potter, mm-hmm. which is, so Marcel referenced Fangirl, which is an earlier book by um, Rainbow Rowell. So Fangirl is about um, this young woman named Kath going off to university, 
college. It's in the States. And she is a fan fiction writer and she's deeply embedded into the fandom for this um, very popular seven book series of YA novels about a chosen magical boy who finds out he's a wizard when, sorry, a magician when he's 11 and is taken off to a magical, you know, to a magic school where he's going to learn about it. And he's got a nemesis who always wears his hair slicked back and comes from a wealthy family. And he's got a smart, precocious girl who's his best friend. And it's like, so in fangirl, it's just so obvious that the Simon Snow series has stepped in and replaced the function of Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fangirl, it is really about, it's not about Simon Snow, it's about Kath and her relationship to fandom and to these books and to her rewriting of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Carry On was written after, and it's Rainbow Rowell's own sort of entry into this imagined world of Simon Snow. She sort of talks about it as though it's like her own fan fiction written about the characters from Simon Snow. But... In so far as Simon Snow is obviously meant to be a stand-in for Harry Potter, mm-hmm. Carry On is thus also kind of Harry Potter fan fiction. Mm-hmm. So the plot basically is that it is the eighth year of this magical school and sort of the book feels like it's the eighth book in a series, but the other books don't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, And our protagonist, Simon Snow, is coming back to finish his degree. Uh, I don't know. Do we want to, like, go through through the plot briefly? Yeah, we might as well. Yeah. So So we've got Simon, our protagonist, who is, is sent back not to live with a terrible aunt and uncle, but to live in, like, state housing every summer at the insistence of his uh, sort of mentor slash father figure, the mage, who is like a way meaner Dumbledore. Mm -hmm. And Simon at the magical school that he attends, which is called the Watford School, he has a roommate, Baz, who he was magically... The the crucible put them together. Yeah, the crucible, which is like the sorting hat, except instead of putting you into houses, it gives you roommates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the crucible put them together, and they've been nemeses ever since, and have always hated each other, and every year have tried to kill each other. And he comes back for his eighth year, and Baz is missing. Meanwhile, while well, sort of Simon is obsessed with figuring out where Baz is, meanwhile, a lot of shit is going down in the magical world got the humdrum is our main villain and he it he is essentially like the absence of magic so sort of sucks up magic and makes it disappear um and has been creating these sort of holes in the magical atmosphere and the humdrum frequently sends dark creatures to try to kill simon and his friends and then also we've got tension within the magical world, and that is because when the mage came to power, because the mage is both the headmaster of the school and the leader of the magical world, when he came to power, he sort of overthrew the hereditary power of the old money magical families, including Baz's family, and they are pissed off and they have plans for taking power back. So Simon at school has a best friend, Penelope Bunce, who is sort of like, I mean, she's pretty, she's pretty Hermione character. She's, she's, yeah, she's our female sidekick. And then he also has a girlfriend, Agatha, who he breaks up with pretty soon. Mm-hmm. 
and that's to make way for the central romance of the book, which is between Simon and Baz, who start off as nemeses, and then as the book proceeds, they sort of arrive at a truce and then fall in love. And the truce is around Simon agreeing to help Baz figure out who killed his mother when Baz was a young child. His mother was the previous headmaster of Watford, and somebody sent vampires to Watford. She was killed and Baz was turned into a vampire. Baz is a sexy vampire. So the sort of main things are they need to figure out what the humdrum is. Simon has been told that he is the chosen one and has a special role in saving the magical world, but it is unclear exactly what that is going to be. And it's also unclear how Baz and Simon's budding romance will survive Simon's allegiance to the mage, who is this very sort of Marxist revolutionary figure, and Baz's allegiance to the old families who want to see the mage thrown from power. As Marcel pointed out before we started recording, everything that actually happens in this book happens in the last 50 pages in like an absolutely colossal shit show of plot. And while we, the readers, get told everything, none of the characters ever understand what happened. And so we're in this position of like really seeing how everything played out. But we see that because the book shifts between multiple narrative perspectives. Mm -hmm. And so we're not omniscient, but we have access to a lot of different narratives. But no character ever gets access to all that information. So here's the big spoiler alert. In the end... Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay. So it turns out the mage is Simon's father. He, as a young man, was obsessed with the idea of this prophesied greatest mage figure who was going to come along and save the magical world. For the mage, that meant saving it from the sort of gatekeeping tendencies of the old magical families who he thought were killing magic by keeping anybody inadequately powerful out of magic. The mage became obsessed with the idea of fulfilling these prophecies. And he and his partner, Lucy, Simon's mother, Essentially, he forces her to participate in this ritual that causes her to become impregnated with Simon, who is this vessel for an unprecedented amount of magic. She dies shortly after he is born, and the mage decides that the best thing for Simon would be to grow up in the normal world. And so he sends Simon away until Simon is 11 and comes of age, at which point he comes to him and brings him to the school, but never tells him that he's his father. And so Simon never finds out that the mage was his father. Nobody ever finds out. Meanwhile, while Simon is growing up, the mage, in order to take power, hires vampires to come and attack Watford. And it's essentially so that people will believe that there is a heightened risk that allows him to take over, that justifies his taking over. So the mage really is, insofar as there is a villain in this book, he is the villain. He does a lot of really messed up things. He also, like, radicalizes the pedagogy in the magical world. We'll talk about that later. But he's definitely a bad guy. So Simon was created deliberately to be this magical figure, but it turns out that his magic is too powerful and that the magical ecosystem essentially cannot survive him and that the humdrum was actually created the day that Simon came of age because whenever he uses magic, he sucks too much magic out of the magical atmosphere and he leaves these like magical dead zones behind. So the only way to resolve it once Simon understands what he is and what his relationship to 
the humdrum is is for him to pour all of his magic into the humdrum and they use the metaphor of like filling in a hole the humdrum is the hole that's left behind when simon uses magic so instead he pours all of his magic into the humdrum the humdrum ceases to exist simon loses all of his magic and must live henceforth as a normal person except that he has wings and a tail Except that he has wings and a tail, because he made himself wings and a tail during that final battle, and he didn't take them away before he lost all of his magic, so now he can't do anything about them. I hate the wings and the tail. <laughs> it's, so, it's so silly. It's so silly. And so in the, final, in the final scenes of the book, what we get is sort of Baz and Simon attempting to make a go of a relationship, mm-hmm. recognizing that both of them have had, like, super fucking traumatic pasts, and so it's going to be hard. We have Simon getting to live with uh, Penelope as roommates, which is, I find really beautiful and touching because Penelope always assumed he was going to die. And Simon also always assumed he was going to die. And now he gets to have a future. And Simon doesn't know who his parents are. Nobody ever comes to understand how he came about, why he had the magic he had. We're really just left with these characters sort of having to move forward only half knowing what actually happened and trying to sort of make the best of their lives. So that's just to to sort of catch you in if you haven't read the book um, or if you read it and at the end were like, wait, what just happened? Mm. Because honestly, it's, it's a lot. So here is the question. Here is my question about the status of this book. Marcel, is this fan fiction? Is it a Harry Potter adaptation? Is it just... Uh, is it a standalone novel that relies heavily on Harry Potter as an intertext? Like, what is the relationship between this novel and Harry Potter? Great question, Hannah. Great question. <laughs> so a conversation that Hannah and I have had uh, in the past about this book is the fact that uh, a mutual friend of ours was reading it one time, and I saw that he was reading it, and I said, what do you think of it as an adaptation? And he said what do you mean an adaptation? An adaptation of what? And I said, never mind, carry on. (laughs) Ha, carry on. (laughs) (laughs) And I never actually followed up with him, um, but he was a good, good, good way through the book. So there's nothing, I just feel like if it doesn't strike you as either an adaptation or an intertext in like the first 200 pages, then like, it's not like the end will, will be like, Oh, Harry Potter. But the conversation that Hannah and I had after that was how surprised I was that anybody who has read Harry Potter could read this and not see it as like glaringly related to Harry Potter Um, And the Harry Potter series. So if any of our listeners read this and didn't know that it was a Harry Potter intertext, could you tweet at us and tell us about that experience? Like, if this is blowing your mind, if this episode has just blown your mind, (laughs) could you let us know? (laughs) Why did Hannah and Marcel want us to read this book that clearly has nothing to do with Harry Potter and is just about gay wizards? Anyway, uh, so... So to me, I think that probably the most accurate term would be intertext because it's not exactly an adaptation because it is its own world. Uh, It's not just that all the things about Harry Potter have been translated into this book, Mm -hmm. but like using different words. But a lot of that does happen. Mm -hmm. Like Simon's dead mother's name is Lucy, which is exactly the same as Lily. 
There are eight years in the school. So, yeah. So I think that calling it an adaptation would be unjust. I think that it is, I think that it is definitely its own world with its own, like, clearly elegantly thought through engagement with existing magical texts that exist beyond, beyond Harry Potter. Like, there's lots of, there's lots of stuff being integrated into this novel. But uh, Harry Potter is clearly, like, the the biggest one, the most profound influence. And like the fact that so much of the book is also like not just reiterating the things from Harry Potter, but like directly incorporating commentary on those things mm-hmm. into this story, I think would make it an intertext as opposed to just an adaptation. Yeah. So that, that, yeah. those would be my thoughts. Yeah. Do you have a different interpretation of its relationship <laughs> to Harry Potter? Um, I agree with everything you have said, and also I think that the relationship that it has to Harry Potter sort of for the reader will also depend on whether you read Fangirl first, because it's the relationship between Carry On and Fangirl and the relationship between Fangirl and Harry Potter then changes the relationship between Carry On and Harry Potter, so that, like, I wouldn't read Carry On necessarily and think this is a work of fan fiction. Like, I would read it and think, yeah, this is a book that is, like, heavily drawing on the intertext of Harry Potter. But when we put fangirl in, then I'm thinking about the fanfiction dimension of it Mm -hmm. and the degree to which, through that lens, reading Carry On feels to me like somebody's Harry Potter fanfiction. Mm -hmm. And in that way, what I mean is that, yes, like, yeah, she changes a lot of the world, but... She doesn't change a lot of the world. She keeps the main characters largely intact. Mm -hmm. And the way that she changes them feels like deliberate commentaries on Rowling's characters. Mm -hmm. Such that, like, it feels like it's doing that kind of talking right back to the original series. And there's a couple of, I wrote down a couple of, of moments that for me felt like so overtly like a commentary on on things that happen in the Harry Potter books. So uh, really early on, Simon takes like a page to describe in explicit detail what the school uniforms look like, mm-hmm. like every piece of the school uniforms, which is like great robe gate content. Mm-hmm. There's the crucible that gives you roommates, which is like obviously the sorting hat and the silliness and arbitrariness of it also feels like a commentary on the sorting system. Um, there's the moment where it's Penelope narrating specifies that actually I can't remember if it's, if it's Penelope or Simon, but somebody explains that there aren't any servants at Watford. And so the students f- serve themselves at the meals, which mm-hmm. is like, Oh, this is how you write house elves out of this series. Um, you know, and then at the end, Simon is seen a magical psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many of the things that are like not sort of given as asides, but like the narrative makes a point to sort of pause and point them out. Mm-hmm. They feel to me like they answer specifically like issues that we have had with the Harry Potter books yeah. when we've been like, oh, like this is kind of a problem in this, or isn't this a weird problematic thing? Like, isn't it um, really fucked up that Rowling has insisted there's no disability? And here's Raoul making a point of mentioning a student in a wheelchair. Like, mm-hmm. It, it feels like somebody came along who had a lot of the same issues that we had with the books and mm-hmm. 
wrote back to them. So then my follow-up question to you would be, what do you think is the difference between an intertext and fan fiction? Especially in this context. Yeah. I don't think there is one. I don't, like, I'm not really. Because, like, like I guess the question is, does the work stand on its own? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, because fan fiction doesn't need to, but an intertext should. I mean, I guess maybe the only reason that fan fiction doesn't is because it does not typically get published by a mainstream publisher, right? So then yeah. you have things like, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey, which gets published as its own thing. And then people are like, what? This was fan fiction? Yeah. But you you know more about the reception of Carry On than, than I do. And we've sort of chatted a little bit about this before, but let's pretend that we haven't. <laughs> what, what was the reception of Carry On like? Because as I keep saying in reference to this friend who was like, what adaptation? <laughs> like it, it really, it just like surprises me so much that anybody would read this and not, and not immediately think, oh, this is Harry Potter. In response to that, I just want to read you a little bit of the um, author's note at the end of Carry On, where uh, Rainbow Rowell writes that Simon Snow is kind of an amalgam and descendant of a hundred other fictional chosen ones. And then she goes on, um, I've read and loved so many magical chosen ones stories. How would I write my own? It's my take on a character I couldn't get out of my head. It's my take on this kind of character and this kind of journey. And that feels to me like protesting too much. Mm. Like that to me is like, come fuck off. You're writing Harry Potter fan fiction. (laughs) Like, but like, because fan fiction has this sort of cultural role of like, it's not legitimate cultural production. It's not, you know, it doesn't get to be published. Like it can be published online, but it can't be published as its own book because it's not adequately original. And so so then there's this effort to sort of reframe it as Mm -hmm. original and unique and new Mm -hmm. in a way that's like, yeah, this what this Lev Grossman quote on the back. Trust me, you have never, ever seen a wizard school like this. And it's like, everybody just chill. Like, yeah. Well, and, and that, what you just said about fan fiction not, like, being allowed to, uh, not being allowed to be real literature is, yeah. is precisely the problem that the character Kath has in, in Fangirl, right? Yeah. Which again, we'll talk about later, but it's just, it's interesting to me that even though Raoul is very clearly aware of that, at least aware enough to integrate that issue into Fangirl, which precedes Carry On, that there would still be this section at the end that's like, no, 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 this is real, this is real, this is real. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's like, it's definitely, it's just, everything is original, it's original, this isn't, yeah. this isn't fan fiction. And it's like, I kind of just wish, like, and I understand from a publishing perspective why this wouldn't be possible, right? Because you sure. have to claim unique intellectual property. Yeah. But like, part of me really just wishes that she had just like, published this and then been like, yeah, it's fan fiction, guys. Like, yeah. it's just that I got to get my fan fiction published because I'm like a famous author. Yeah, yeah. So to like clarify, Rainbow Rowell didn't do anything wrong i no. just wish that the world was different yeah just <laughs> <laughs> how i feel about a lot of things <laughs> 
well, we don't have much history with this book, but that won't stop us from paying a visit to Flourish and Blots. Okay, so Hannah, you have two copies of this book. Why don't you why don't you talk about that? I sure do. Um, I am going to struggle, like there's lots and lots of things that I have to say about this book, but like I'm going to struggle to even express the particular way in which the central romance in this book moves me. Like that I just Simon and Baz's relationship like murders me. Like I just I can I can't even handle it. So I bought the hardcover edition like some time ago when I first read it. And it's nice. It's got a sort of nice stylized cover that's the two characters' profiles looking at each other or about to kiss. They're probably about to kiss. Oh, they're for sure about to kiss. And then uh, Watford, a little sort of outline of Watford in the bottom. And it's a lovely hardcover. It's got, you know, glued into the cover. The map of Watford, which is a lovely little touch. It's an entirely useless map. It serves no purpose in the story. Like, at no point do you have to, like, go and look at it the way that you do a map of Westeros. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's just there as a sort of paratextual fantasy touch. Mm -hmm. But the hardcover edition is lovely. But then the trade paperback edition came out and it's got this really fabulous illustration of uh, the two characters, like full-on illustration of them, as well as a lovely uh, fold-out of the map. And I loved this picture of them. I think that this cover is a lot gayer than the hardcover. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's real gay. It's got a beautiful purple dragon on it. And the, the gayness of this book was so very important to me that I bought a second copy. <laughs> I would say that it's also much more YA, that one, because you definitely see, like, the youthfulness of both Baz and and Simon. And there's a dragon in the background, but it's a, like, pink and purple dragon. It's not, like dances with dragons elegantly like embossed it's like a a a hot fun exciting thrilling teenage angst kind of kind of dragon i think it's really cool that the gayness and the ya-ness is allowed to to coexist i like the i like the idea that there are teenagers out there who are going to pick up this book and like maybe be exposed to how like profoundly and deeply two men can love each other. Like I think that I think that that's so exciting yeah. and so thrilling. I would say that the that the hardcover edition is like not necessarily it's not it doesn't look to me like it's targeted at adults, but it it looks like it's um what do I want to say about this? You could look at this cover and not know that it's two profiles. Mm. Uh, I, I actually had forgotten for a little while that it was two profiles, um, because when Hannah started reading her paperback copy in anticipation of the episode, she posted a picture of it and I was like, oh, that's neat. You can actually see the two characters on the cover. And then I went back to mine and I was like, oh yeah, no, they're on this cover too. (laughs) Yeah. But it's so stylized. It's very stylized. Yeah. And it, it has a very kind of like, the image is like, it was done in marker as opposed to it was, you know how the, like the Harry Potter for adults books Mm -hmm. like look more like adult fantasy. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like that. It's, it's not like fantasy for adults. It's like a very low key YA novel that adults may want to read. That's, that's what this cover says to me. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. Whereas this one is like teen romance. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, uh, in reference to your sort of thought of like somebody who might pick up this book and, and have a revelation. I actually, after I read it, I recommended it to a good friend of mine in Vancouver, who is also, who is gay and a Harry Potter fan. And uh, was like, I loved this book a lot. You should read it. And I lent it to him. And after reading it, he was texting me and he said that he had had this revelation as he was reading it that um, he loves fantasy and he never gets to see gay protagonists in fantasy. Mm -hmm. And he's never gotten to see like a queer love story at the heart of a fantasy novel. And he was like, I'm going to seek out books with gay characters like it's like he it, it hadn't even occurred to him that that got to be a thing that he got to prioritize reading totally. yeah. and now he's been really making a point of reading yeah. a lot of like queer YA which is like a genre that exists now and like the you know he's like in his 30s like we are um sorry I just got <laughs> um but it's like even now to sort of go back and read books like this and to, like, have your inner 14-year-old have that, get to finally have that experience is still, it's still pretty revelatory. I think maybe that's one of the reasons why this book, like, bummed me out so much. Mm -hmm. I really thought that it was going to be a fangirl level of, like, thrilling romance that you are yeah. always, is always just at bay. You're like, are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? And so every time they make out, you're like, yes, make out, make out. You didn't feel that way in this book? I did for like 10 pages. There's <laughs> not enough. My complaint about this book is that there's not, there's like oh. not enough. Hard agree. More make outs, please. <laughs> if somebody could write me some carry on fan fiction that is literally just a hundred pages of Baz and Simon making out. If there's hard R carry on fan fiction I want you to send it to me sexy there's a moment in this book after the like the, I think we get like two thrilling earth shattering instances of of Baz and Simon making out but then later Baz is like thinking back to previous like the previous night when and I'm almost going to quote this because it's burned into my brain forever. Simon crawled over top of him on all fours and made him like beg for his mouth. And I was like, why is this only coming as a memory? Why wasn't I there for that? You have given me so much sadness in this book. Why didn't I get to be there? <laughs> I feel precisely the same way about that exact line, which is also burned into my memory. And in the scene where Baz is remembering that, what is happening is that Simon is rubbing Baz's stomach. Like he stuck his fingers in between the buttons on Baz's shirt and is rubbing his stomach. Sexy. And then somebody fucking walks in and interrupts them. And it's like, honest, why won't you let me live? Like, why? And then there's this scene right at the end where like Baz talks about how like, Maybe the relationship isn't proceeding as quickly as he had hoped that it would because, like, Simon has really bad PTSD and that they just do a lot of hand-holding. And I was like, fuck all of this. Fuck all of this. Like, no. No. They are boning. God damn it. Yeah, you're not wrong about any of that. 
This is our section about book history. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I really... I feel a bit bad that I'm so bummed out by this book because I know that you and our friend Claire just like love it so much. And we got to the point, like as soon as Baz was introduced, I was like, yes, I'm going to love this book too. And then they start making out and I'm like, yes, I love this book. And then they stop making out and then everything is sad. And I just, I'm not over it. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm at a point in my life where I'm too sad in my like day to day to read a book that makes me sad. But remember in that final scene where Baz is making Simon carry all of the furniture up to his apartment mm-hmm. and then he's and then he's making funny jokes while he's looking at his phone. Remember yeah. how sweet that is? It is. It's so it's sweet very, and tender. It's very sweet. It's very sweet. So sweet and tender. I think maybe I also have like I think I I very clearly have some some not new mom but new mom issues. Oh. The issues like, are new, not the mom. Yeah, yeah. Like, the Lucy never being able to communicate with Simon, like, and Natasha never being able to communicate. Oh, oh okay, listen. Getting... Oh, okay, session. okay, okay, okay. Yeah, let's just, just, let's just go there. Let's okay. just go there. All right, we're going there. Harry might not be in this book, but... Don't you worry, we still have plenty of unreliable narrators to talk about in The Boy Who Narrated. So briefly, before we jump right back into the problem of uh, missed connections, which is like a big theme of this book, the important thing to note is that whereas the whole Harry Potter series is narrated from Harry's perspective, with the exception of like three chapters, which we talked about at length, this book is narrated from multiple limited perspectives. So chapter by chapter, it jumps around, always tells you whose mm-hmm. voice you're you're reading through we are very clearly being exposed to so it's third person limited throughout but from the perspective of all kinds of different characters including that we repeatedly get chapters being told by Simon's dead mother Lucy who tried to come and visit Simon towards the beginning of the novel when the veil was thinning and ghosts could come through and talk to people but couldn't quite make it through to him and so instead narrates to us things that Simon never gets to hear. So not not a fan of this unbelievably tragic narrative choice. I just I just say the words my rosebud boy and see if it makes you cry. <laughs> reader it did oh Um, my god it's rough oh yeah lucy's story is like a bazillion times sadder than uh than lily's than lily's story so the thing that i was gonna say before we appropriately moved on to this section where it would be relevant (laughs) is that um i think a real missed opportunity is the fact that natasha gives simon a kiss to give to Baz, and Simon never gives that kiss to Baz. And I, he gives Baz lots of kisses. Sexy! But he never gives Baz the kiss that his mother gave him. Oh, I... And I think that that would have been really beautiful. So beautiful. The line when Natasha, Baz's mother, kisses Simon on the forehead, and Simon comments that he's never been kissed anywhere but on the mouth. 
is like the saddest line in literature. Yeah. 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 That was heartbreaking. Yeah. So we get um, Natasha misses Baz because he has been kidnapped under the mage's orders, specifically because the mage knows that Natasha is likely to come back from beyond the veil and tell Baz about the mage sending the vampires to Watford. And then Lucy never getting to reach Simon. And so these sons never actually getting to getting to talk to their mothers is absolutely devastating. And also to me, again, feels like there's this sort of nod, this constant nod to Harry Potter, right? To the way that that final climactic scene where Harry is making this great sacrifice he finds the strength to do it because his mother is there with him and tells him that they're not going to leave his side while he goes to die. Why? <laughs> and Simon never gets that. Lucy's there, but he never knows. He never gets to see her. He never would just full on weeping. <laughs> No, no. So the book seems to me to be really deliberately using the multiple characters, the sort of multiple perspectives as a way of like signaling to us overtly the limitations of each character's view of the world and also sort of showing that like in Harry Potter, we never know anything that Harry doesn't know. And so in the end, all of our knowledge is also all of Harry's knowledge and we get the satisfaction of getting to share the perspective of a character who has come to complete understanding of everything that happened. Mm -hmm. And in Carry On, because we see everything, but no one character shares that readerly perspective, and so we never get the satisfaction of getting to see a character fully understand everything. We are left with all of this knowledge, and that knowledge is like upsetting because we can't share it with the characters and they can't share it with each other. Mm -hmm. And there's to like, to structure a novel around missed connections, misunderstandings, lack of communication is like in a lot of ways, like an inherently unsatisfying way to write a narrative. Sure is. Yeah. (laughs) But, but unsatisfying, I think in a really interesting way. Yeah. 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 Like, like unsatisfying in a way that is sort of thinking about what kinds of perspectives get lost via a narrative like the Harry Potter one where like, okay, we've talked about how Harry Potter is the, you know, the face that launched a thousand fan fictions because so much stuff never gets filled in Mm -hmm. and just like, isn't there. We never get to hear from Draco. We never get like, we never get to hear from Cho Chang. Mm -hmm. And so you can go and write your own narratives where you fill the things in, which is what feels fan fiction-y about this book to me, is that it's filling in all of these narratives around. We get to see how it makes Penelope feel to know that her best friend is the chosen one and thus will probably die. Mm -hmm. And that like sort of fierce agonizing tenderness that she never communicates to him. Like we get to see all of these pieces that get left out of a story that centers around one perspective and they never come together. And that is so much more like what the world is like it's just like these multiple Mm -hmm. perspectives that sometimes get communicated but like often just don't Mm -hmm. but when you put it that way it like really turns me into one of those like traditionalists who leans hard into like a traditional narrative form you know single semi-omniscient 
narrator. You know, one of our followers, not that long ago, I I noticed had been corrected by another person who does not follow us. I I I checked. Um, <laughs> they were tweeting about like everything in Harry Potter we know because it's told from Harry's perspective, and somebody well actually them. And I just if you're if if you were if you are the one who is well actually and you're listening, I just want you to know that like I was with you in that moment. I saw you. <laughs> you were seen by me. <laughs> That person sucked. <laughs> it was like a completely and totally oh. unnecessary correction to make. Anyway, back to back to my point. Um, yeah, like these types of narration are like very intentionally designed to leave you feeling wanting and yeah. to like to to refuse that sort of satisfying everything comes together at the end. Um And so when I say that I didn't like the book, I want to be very clear that I'm not saying it was badly written. This is a really, really, really well written book. Um, And I think is an incredible testament to like how the distinctions that we make in, you know, mainstream society between fan fiction and literature are absurd, because as a work of fan fiction, it's, it's incredibly well done. But it like, left me wanting in ex- yeah. in precisely the ways that it would appear that this book set out to <laughs> set out to do yeah. and that's why in some ways the Harry Potter series is like deeply and fundamentally satisfying i think that that is maybe why so many people who see themselves so aggressively written out of that series by Rowling's insistence on saying ridiculous things Um, why they still love that series and still insist on like reading themselves into it um, because it is a very satisfying series you get to the end and like even if you're heartbroken about certain things it feels whole and complete whereas this will never carry on will never let you feel whole and complete it was just going to keep refusing to let you be there when simon crawls over top of baz and makes him reach for his mouth sexy this is our horniest episode. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> so the the one other piece of um, sort of interesting narrative difference in this book that we wanted to talk about is um, the way that sort of part of letting us read through the perspective of many, many, many different characters means that we get to see more different views of this magical world and we get a wider sense of the different ways in which these characters sort of engage with this magical world and engage with the larger world that they're embedded in, right? So we've got, um, for example, Baz and Penelope are sort of both raised in traditional magical families, seem to be you know, predominantly um, sort of rooted in the world of magic and sort of knowledge of that world. You mean Baz and Agatha? No, no, because Agatha loves normals. Yeah. Yeah. But she's raised in. But she's raised in the also in a traditional. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So Agatha is as well. But I was I, I was I did mean Penelope because okay. Penelope doesn't seem to have much interest in the sort of normal pop culture I see, world. I see, I see. But Agatha does. Agatha's also raised... I mean, they all are, right? That's a, a carefully specified difference in this world is that there are no muggle-borns mm-hmm. or no normal-born people. Like, mages and, and normals are um, decisively different. Mm-hmm. So Simon is the only 
made who has ever grown up in the normal world, but everybody lives to a greater or lesser degree in the normal world. And we've got, you know, characters like um, Fiona, Baz's aunt, who like lives in London. Um, We've got Agatha, who has a bunch of normal friends and like during the summer is like a, a competitive horseback rider and likes to go over and do gel manicures with a girl named Minty. You know, and we've got we've got Simon who is just sort of much more aware of the regular world and the the book doesn't make the kind of effort that the Harry Potter series does to be kind of timeless and disengaged mm. with the normal world because it's interested in like how magic would relate to pop culture and current technology and shifting language and shifting idioms. Mm -hmm. And so there's references to Queen and Doctor Mm -hmm. Who and iPhones, and um, that's all really sort of embedded in there. But Hannah, Queen and Doctor Who and iPhones are also timeless. (laughs) The The iPhone definitely felt to me like the most overt. At one point they specify that Penny has a new iPhone and it's white. (laughs) And it was just such a moment of like, like that's going to date you mm-hmm. in a way that nothing in Harry Potter dates it. I can't remember who I was talking to recently. I think it was Trevor, our erstwhile tech support. Hi, how are you doing? And somebody else, but I can't remember who the other person was. And we were talking about the fact that Apple has been changing everything from I blank mm-hmm. to Apple blank. And we're like, is it just going to be called an Apple phone or an Apple tablet? Oh. An Apple Pad? Apple Pad. Apple Pad is dumb. (laughs) Hey, guess what? (laughs) You're a kitty. She's a kitty. This book absolutely is still set at a school and still has professors. So let's head over to potions class to talk about how Carry On comments on magical pedagogy. Yeah, so I think that my favorite thing, aside from the kissing... Sexy! ...in this book was the fact that the spells are idioms and lyrics and lines from poems. They're just like, they're turns of phrase that the the argument is that they become magical. Um, and it is such a lovely way to think of... The fact that like words are magical, like metaphor, we say this, we say this metaphors are literally magic. That's the difference between a metaphor and a simile. A simile is when something is like another thing. A metaphor is a magical transformation where the one thing becomes the other. And that's, that's how magic works in this book. And I think that's awesome. I remember some time ago, uh, Neil and I were having a conversation about the ways in which teaching first year English feels like teaching students about magic Mm -hmm. because it's like, wait until you learn about discourse. Mm -hmm. Wait until you learn that language has actual power and actually reshapes the world. (gasps) And that basic premise of like language is a real and material thing. And the way we use words, the way we combine them, the way, you know, what kinds of words we use ritualistically and repeatedly has like real material force in the world and changes things um that's a premise of the study of literature it's a premise of the writing of literature and so this does feel like this image of spells you know which is 
you say something like up up and uh, away up up and away yeah absolutely to fly or um hair of the dog mm-hmm. to help somebody um get over a hangover or um come out come out wherever you are to make somebody who's hiding reveal where they are fine tooth comb to uh, search a book or a library or whatever just wonderful and you know you might have different like if you are bilingual you'll have access to spells in multiple languages or um you know if you have different understandings of language that will impact how you can use different kinds of spells you can't just learn them by rote you need to understand the language and be able to sort of think about it and engage with it and it just feels to me like the most writerly understanding of magic Mm -hmm. like so so perfect an image of what's magical about language to sort of embed in in a book itself Mm -hmm. um and like that explains why they have classes like greek and latin so that they understand the roots of of language and and it also makes sense why they would have real non-magical education classes because magic and language and magical language has applicability in the real world they're not like isolated in a tiny bubble that somehow exists outside of any kind of influence from like non-magical society yeah it makes a lot of sense there's a really interesting sort of back and forth between the mage who is this kind of like more nouveau magic user who really wants um, other magicians to be staying close to the language. So staying, so like staying engaged in pop culture and, and staying sort of embedded in normal society so that they can keep abreast of how language is continuously transforming versus a sort of more old school approach, which is like, a, there's a, a, a sort of passing reference to how at some point, mages were trying to repopularize Victorian culture to breathe life back into old spells that had died out. Mm-hmm. And uh, that feels so much like the sort of prescriptive versus descriptive approach to language use that is so much a part of how we already talk about language, right? Mm-hmm. Will we just go with the flow of how language is constantly transforming or do we try to sort of embed hard and fast rules? Yeah, I love that they have like I love that they have Greek and Latin and elocution mm-hmm. but that also there's like political science mm-hmm. like it appears that at Watford there are real classes and that after people are done Watford they go to university <gasps> some of them go to medical school like yeah. they don't they don't go straight from this like unbelievably skewed high school curriculum directly into the workforce so on the topic of the sort of, you know, gatekeeping the descriptive versus prescriptive approach to language, um, one of the major concerns of Carry On is the role of Watford as like the one magical school in England and the kind of gatekeeping around who gets to go and who doesn't. So essentially when the mage took over, he changed all of the policies and insisted that anybody with an iota of magic... Um, and the way they talk about it is anybody who can speak magic would be allowed to go, whereas previously Watford was only for the most powerful. And the insistence that you had to have a certain level of power meant that the education sort of stayed in the hands of these old and powerful magical families. Mm-hmm. And so there's some pretty overt commenting on the relationship between education and class happening here Mm -hmm. right the sort of the pure blood families who are allowed to maintain control over education um 
And also just a little bit more pushing back against the question of like, what is the role of education in a culture like this magical culture being imagined? You know, we've we've asked a number of times of Harry Potter, like, does everybody get to go to Hogwarts? Does that even make sense? Like, if you don't go to Hogwarts, where do you go? Um, how are other people getting education? Like, the implication that Neville thought he might not get in suggests mm-hmm. that maybe inadequately powerful people don't get in. And so then what becomes of them? And, you know, why don't squibs get to go? And what's the status of squibs? And yeah, like, Carry On is also thinking about that thinking about it in a way that I think more overtly ties it into the sort of like English image of like if you come from a from a particular kind of family you get to go to a particular kind of school and once you've gone to that school you are guaranteed a position of power that will then allow you to make the decision that only people like you will get to go to that school and that's how we perpetuate the centralizing of power around a very limited portion of society versus public and universal education, which is like a requirement of a truly democratic culture. I'd say that's my hot take. I think education should be democratized. Now the interesting and troubling thing is that the mage, our character who argues for um, the elimination of gatekeeping at school and the radical democratization of uh, education and access to power and knowledge in the magical world um, is also kind of a monster. (laughs) So let's talk about this guy. Yeah. So I think that, I think that a handful of really interesting things are going on um, with the fact that the mage sucks. Um, (laughs) Sucks so hard. hard. And I think one of them is the kind of like, one of them is obviously a commentary on the fact that like Dumbledore was not a flawless character and also did some like, super shady shit in order to get uh his way and that so much of the um the revolution or the wizarding uh the wizarding wars the Dumbledore side the order of the phoenix side uh had to rely on just like taking at like absolute unquestioned faith everything that Dumbledore says and so the fact that the mage sucks is like a very good example of why that's terrible. And I've seen just in my like real banal basic life, a number of ways in which people who are really good and really awesome and, and people who rely on people who are really good and really awesome take for granted that the person who is in that position will always be really good and really awesome. And so you don't need to have, checks and balances in place to prevent that person in that role from abusing the power that they have. So, so yeah, so having the mage suck is great and very smart. It actually reminds me a lot. I, I was looking it up on my phone just now to remember the name of the character, but um, he, as a character, reminds me of Pasha from Dr. Shivago, which I read when I was a teenager and can't remember at all, but I've seen the movie several times. And in the movie, um, Pasha, or Pavel, uh, is a revolutionary. He's like, uh, he's, it's the, it's the Russian revolution. He is, he's, he's on the side of, of good and right, which is that power should not be concentrated in the hands of the wealthy upper and aristocratic classes, right? Like everyone sees the means of production is what I'm saying. 
but but he himself becomes corrupted in in power and i think we see a similar thing with the mage where like yeah like just because you have the right idea doesn't mean that you're not a shitty garbage person and the mage is a garbage person and that's i guess all i have to say about that i i think you are exactly right i think that again there's commentary here on harry's blind faith in dumbledore and how you know, there's a couple of moments in the last book where Harry doubts that faith, but that doubt proves to be wrong and Dumbledore was 100% right and good and reliable. Mm-hmm. And the message that that gives us is um, actually it's okay to put blind faith in authority figures mm-hmm. if they're good guys. Mm-hmm. Um, they're allowed to be manipulative and to use power however they want, um, that you can use power however you want if you're a good guy. And in Carry On, nobody who uses power however they want is a good guy. Like, there is no unimplicated, unproblematic way to engage with power. It's always potentially violent. It's always potentially dangerous. It constantly needs checks and balances. It constantly needs to be questioned. Mm -hmm. And our sweet virtuous protagonist who puts his blind faith into his father figure is like super fucking wrong and a bunch of women die as a direct result um you know women who wanted nothing more than to be allowed to just like not be subject to this violence just like don't get to opt out but yeah no there's a really really interesting refusal of uh the dumbledore figure Mm -hmm. happening via the the character of the mage here for sure so we don't have a lot of other teachers to talk about that miss posabelle for however the hell you say her name who's our mcgonagall figure is like cool but basically non-present and uh similarly we've got a minotaur instead of a centaur but um they're not really important characters the only other major teacher character we have is ebb who is Mm -hmm. our sort of hagrid surrogate yeah so like ebb also was a was a student um also decided not to leave is also sort of this big scruffy character who's mocked by a lot of the students but uniquely loved by our good protagonist loves working with animals is gentle and has a tendency towards weeping like eb is such a hagrid yeah, like totally. um whereas hagrid is in the position that he is in because he is good-hearted and kind but ultimately incompetent mm-hmm. eb is incredibly powerful and has deliberately chosen not to use her power and i think in that way she becomes like dumbledore and hagrid's relationship is that dumbledore is the powerful and magnanimous figure who is extended to hagrid a home and hagrid is sort of his dutiful servant Mm -hmm. but uh ebb is arguably as powerful as the mage Mm -hmm. but doesn't want doesn't want to use that power. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, one of, I think one of the most interesting things that she's sort of teaching us in the book is to think about the options, the different options for engaging with power. Mm -hmm. When you are somebody who is in a position who has access to power, you know, both Ebb and the major people who have access to power through no uh, particular sort of right or virtue, just like, by the act by accident of birth Mm -hmm. um have access to unusually high amounts of power and one wants to just disavow it entirely and the other wants to use it to make the world better to make the world over in their image yeah but 
what I got from the book was that Eb Eb disavowed her power when her brother crossed I don't I'm not really sure how to describe this but when he like crossed over to the vampires when he when he chose to become a vampire um and it is presented to us as though he made that choice because he wanted more power mm-hmm. and that did not work out for him mm-hmm. uh he was the term that they use in the book is gelded so they took his fangs away which is a really violent and invasive I mean, I am not a vampire, but I imagine that if one were, that would be terrible. The worst. Yeah, yeah so like to me, Ebb's disavowal of power is um, is a response of grief. It's as though the book sets her up to be the foil to the mage, but really she's the foil to her brother, but her brother just isn't a central character mm-hmm. in the novel, coming back to the very postmodern way in which this novel is written. <laughs> What do you do when you have a character whose foil isn't in the novel? Um, I'm uncomfortable with Eb's death. It leaves me feeling very upset. Yeah, Eb dies entirely pointlessly. Mm-hmm. It's a real bummer. And fucking Simon doesn't do anything. And Simon I mean, doesn't. Simon. He probably can't. Can't save her. This isn't actually what they call it in this book. I think it's the wavering wood. But let's head to the Forbidden Forest anyway and talk about race and class and sexuality. Why is the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed your answer to better health and wellness? It's proven quality sleep. Any more questions? Yes, I'm always freezing and he overheats. It's temperature balancing so you can sleep better together. But can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. So I'll have more energy for yoga. Yes, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Namaste. Namaste to you, too. And now save up to $1,000 on the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed and adjustable base, only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Yeah, so I'm just going to jump right back in and talk about how, for me, it feels like one of the overarching concerns of this book, you know, is this question of power, what you do with power when you have it, how you get it, why you want it, how you justify the use or non-use of it, and thinking about, you know, what characters have different kinds of power, um, natural-born power, hereditary power, you know, people who want to disavow it, people who insists that the responsible thing to do with it is try to remake the world in a better image. And I think we really can think about that as sort of um, both class and race privilege being worked through, right? So look at somebody like the mage who was born with a great deal of natural power and believes that that means that he has been called upon to try to fix the world, try to save the world, versus a character like, um, like Ebb, who's sees the way that power can corrupt people, sees what it's done to her brother, and tries to disavow it entirely. Um, you know, and is that an option? Like, is that a, a, a thing that you are allowed to do when okay. you have that much power? Or Agatha, right, who who is in this position where sort of all aspects of this, this magical world are available to her and doesn't want anything to do with it. So in the book, actually, it's Agatha who does this. Agatha points out that all Ebb wanted was to have nothing to do with it, to just not participate in the war, and she was not allowed to sit out. Mm-hmm. But Agatha 
chooses to. Agatha listened when Eb told her to run, and Agatha ran, and she never looked back. And so my question is, what is the message of the book? Is the message of the book that you can sit it out or that you cannot? Like, I think the book is telling us that you can try and it may or may not work out for you. Mm -hmm. Like, much like you can also try to use it and it may or may not work out for you. Like, I think one of the really interesting things about what Carry On is doing is, like, actually not coming down with a sort of clear stance. Like, it doesn't say you must always use what power you have um, or you must always give up power or it's best to disavow it because, you know, both Eb and Agatha try to disavow their power and Eb is killed for it and Agatha seems to work out for her as far as we can tell. But Agatha also thinks that she's doing the same thing that Lucy did because Agatha thinks that Lucy got away and also moved to California. But we know that Lucy was also killed. Like he was another sort of person sacrificed to the mage's hunger for power. Um, you know, Simon, our hero, would seem to be showing us that the most ethical thing to do with power is to give it up, to give it away. But Penelope and Baz are also protagonists and neither of them give their power away. Mm-hmm. Like, and they're, they, the magical world continues and people's concern with maintaining magical power continues. So like, there's an, an interesting sense that like, when you are somebody who has been given this power that again is unearned because that's what magic is in this world, right? You don't work for it. You either have it or you don't, you can learn to master it, but like you have it or you don't, it's there or it's not. Um, and so it becomes a question of what is the responsible use of it? And that seems to be so nuanced and difficult and case specific and imperfectible in a way that feels very, like, realpolitik to me. Like, very, very much the actual fact of, of how power works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. One, one aspect of that that I found really interesting was the way towards the end of the book when people have figured out what's going on with Simon, that he's so powerful that when he uses his magic, he's basically, like, clear-cuts whole swaths of the magical ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um. So it starts to rely on these sort of ecological metaphors to talk about why Simon can't be allowed to continue to exist because he's creating the humdrum. And something really interesting is playing out in the relationship between the mage and his very sort of radical left politics, right? His desire for a sort of social revolution And the fact that his social revolution is unsustainable because it's based on this premise that there is no limit to how much magic you can use. Mm -hmm. And um, it reminded me of a talk I saw a few years ago. Some white dude was talking about the tensions between uh, Marxist leftism and environmental leftism. And essentially his point was that, like... Marx was writing during the Industrial Revolution when there was no sense that any resources were finite. There was an assumption that we had access to unlimited resources, and so what was important was the proletariat taking control of those resources. But the environmental left knows that, in fact, there's a distinct cap on resources. And so 
you can't just sort of use things without limits to try to correct social injustices. Well, yeah, which ties again back into that sort of larger, like the irresponsible use of power with good intentions still has devastating results. Mm-hmm. So the other, like sort of thinking about the way that Carry On is like reframing the relationship between sort of class and power and magic really reminded me of a super interesting sort of short tweet thread, Twitter thread, Twitter. series series of tweets from uh, Andrea Hasenbank, our semi-regular guest, about what it would actually look like in the sort of Harry Potter wizarding world to uh, to have meaningful change in the way the world is organized. So in this very interesting series of tweets, she talks about um, how we would need like real reform in the Ministry of Magic, that uh, there would need to be somebody would need to address the sort of linking of state power and education, and then linking of education to the workforce. Um, that there be, need to be more transparency around how leaders are chosen, open elections, unrestricted education, the abolishment of hereditary houses, and local magical councils that counter the centralized power of the ministry. And I was thinking about these tweets when I was rereading Carry On because all of that stuff comes up in this book. It really does seem to be thinking in very similar ways to how Andrew's thinking about what would real political reform of a magical world look like. And the magical world at the beginning of Carry On looks a lot like the one in Harry Potter, right? Where it's like magic is primarily moved through these sort of hereditary old families. It's unclear how people come into positions of power. It's a very clear link between state power and education, etc. And at the end of Carry On, you know, we see the way that there have been some moves towards taking the restrictions out of education to um, trying to make power less hereditary, to um, trying to localize governance, like trying to address the sort of those sorts of, of bad systems. But the book also plays out for us how the actual attempt to reframe how this world works, like it's not an easy move. It's a move that is full of struggles and tensions because people don't give power up easily, right? And so that sort of imagining what's next, like, you know, insofar as this is like the eighth book that never existed in the Harry Potter series, it's like, what actually happens when you try to institute these reforms? Well, like, the old families get mad. And depending on how far you're willing to push the attempt to take power away from those old families, like you might also start to step into some um, politically dubious or ethically dubious use of power there as well. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe, maybe all I'm saying in this section is, Hey, Andrea, I think you would like carry on. Mm. I think it's saying some interesting things about politics and I would be really interested to hear from other people who have read the book and have some thoughts about like what it is saying about politics and education, particularly in the British context, because I guess another really interesting difference here is that this is written by an American author mm-hmm. writing about the UK. And I wonder if that's like maybe part of that different view, maybe a part of that being more overtly critical, for example, of the education system is a sort of North American perspective. 
guess what? What? Granger Danger! So, okay, let's talk about women. There are a number of characters in this book who we're going to look at right now. Lucy, Natasha, Penelope, Agatha, and Fiona. Um, so if you listen to the earlier part of this podcast, which why would you start here? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you would know that I have some feelings about Lucy. I think some of the things that leave me feeling really haunted and distressed about her as a character is that we we know that she's dead because we know that she comes back as a ghost, but we don't know exactly how she died and we don't know exactly why she died. But um, all of the kind of subtext around her relationship to the mage, who she calls Davy, and what we learn about their relationship from Penelope's mother indicates to us that that was an abusive relationship. Um, and there are also signs when Lucy talks about why she goes along with the mage's plan that signal an abusive relationship. One being that she says in no uncertain terms that she doesn't really feel like she had a choice. But the other, and I think this one really like, this one really cuts deep, is the fact that she thought that he wanted to have a child with her. And this seems to me to be one of those things where people believe that having a baby will make their relationship better mm -hmm. because there are moments for many people in that period when you are planning to have that baby where like I don't know if it's oxytocin or if it's just like having babies can be a really exciting thing for people but where like it feels just like perfect mm -hmm. there are moments where things just feel perfect and I imagine that Lucy and Davy had those moments, but that doesn't mean that Davy wasn't abusive. And we don't know how she died, um, but it seems to be that, that the mage killed her or brought about her death in some way or another. And I think like the fact that the fact that Agatha believes that she's still alive and out there. I'm not sure if that's supposed to make you feel good as a reader, so. but it fucking sucks. <laughs> it feels awful. It's just like, sorry. I know, I'm sorry, Kitty. I know. For once, the cat has some chill and she's like getting really upset with us every time we get upset about a thing. I don't know. It just like, it leaves me feeling real bad. I hate the mage. I hate mm -hmm. the mage so much. Mm -hmm. And I wish that Lucy and baby Simon could have just gotten out and they didn't. Lucy's death is like an interesting counterpoint to Baz's relationship to his dead mother, Natasha Grimpitch, who was the head, the headmaster before the mage was and who was very strict about who was allowed into Watford and who was not, and was very anti-vampire and very, like, against dark creatures, and who Baz is very aware that had she lived, would probably have killed him, and has to learn to sort of come to terms with his love for his mother uh, and his honoring of her memory, and his awareness that 
she would be horrified by what he was, Mm -hmm. which does feel to me to be at least in part um, engaging with or or thinking about Baz's queerness as well, Mm -hmm. though the book is very careful about never collapsing his queerness and his vampirism Mm -hmm. and having him hold those apart as like, I'm a vampire and also gay. Mm -hmm. And those are just two different things. Mm -hmm. But thinking about dealing with this relationship with like, you know, Lucy is this, this mother who is characterized by a sort of endless and selfless love for her child that never got to be realized versus Natasha, who is this sort of monstrous mother Mm -hmm. who may or may not have killed her own child given the opportunity I don't know, like, it was kind of nice for me to have both of those mothers there as different versions of what mothering looks like, who are equally, like, I was going to say equally loved by their sons. That's not really true because Simon doesn't know anything about Lucy, Mm -hmm. but, like, equally valued by the narrative Mm -hmm. as mothers who are sort of worthy of being Mm -hmm. grieved and who were good mothers, Mm -hmm. but also both you know, flawed, flawed and tragic figures. What just occurred to me is that um, Agatha may be in part based on Fleur. Yeah. Who had been sort of thinking like, oh, like who is Agatha a response to? But Agatha's like hyper awareness of the like cultural position that her beauty places her in as compared to sort of the role that Fleur plays in the narrative of like, what is her job? Her job is to be beautiful and blonde and an object to be attained by the right male character. And we don't get to see a whole heck of a lot more of her. Mm-hmm. Um, and Agatha has this like awareness of like that's what she means to the people around her. And she's not actually particularly interested in it and would just like to would just like to tap out. Yeah, I find Agatha really, like, I don't like her as yeah. a character. Um, I, find, I think she's actually a pretty profoundly unlikable character. Um, but I found her really interesting as a character because I think as a work of fan fiction, deliberately writing in a character into a fandom that is characterized by aspirational desire to be part of a magical world, mm. to write in a character whose predominant characteristic is want nothing to do with this magical world and would rather like do her nails isn't I like I think an interesting stance I think it's an interesting complication of the like the way that the fandom is just like everybody wants to be magical mm-hmm. it's like well, maybe not maybe it wouldn't actually work out for everyone yeah yeah throughout the novel I definitely had moments of like really liking Agatha and then really like getting a sense of like oh no you're not the type of person who I would ever want to spend any time with. Both Hannah and I made note of this particular moment. Agatha's like frustration with magic, I really identify with. Uh, but I'll just I'll just read the line. So it's when she is trying to find Simon and trying to find the mage. She goes to the mage's office. And it says, there are books everywhere in stacks and lying open. There are pages ripped out and taped all over the wall. Not taped, stuck to the wall with spells. And this is exactly the sort of thing I'm sick of. Like, just use some tape. Why come up with a spell for sticking paper to the wall? Tape. It exists. And, like, that's great. It's great. Yeah, it's one of those, it's one of those things where, like, you don't have to reinvent the wheel for all the things. You can just use some of the things that exist. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Good yeah. good job, Agatha. Um, <laughs> and, like, who doesn't love a gel manicure? They last for so long. But, like, Agatha and I are clearly from, like, different classes, so the things that she wants to do are things like, you do you, girl. I 
I don't want those things. Yeah. Um, and like, that's fine. That's okay. It's yeah. o- it's okay to want different things. Yeah. Agatha is definitely are sort of like, if we're going to give her a feminist reading, it's like, at her heart, Agatha's kind of a shitty white lady. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, she's just, her refusal of the role that she thinks that she's expected to play is, is interesting. I think refusal is always an interesting stance. Mm-hmm. All right. Last but far from least, we have our Hermione Granger character, definitely. Penelope Bunce. Mm-hmm. Can I just say how delighted I am that, like, every other major character in this whole Harry Potter world has a proxy and Ron's just gone? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I know a lot of you are real Ron lovers, but I think it's really fun, really funny that Rainbow Rowell is like, well, we can all agree that we can just eliminate Ron entirely, right? <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah. Well, I mean, you might, you might say that that Agatha, I mean, obviously Agatha is a, is a kind of Ron figure because Simon spends his Christmases with her and yeah. her mother cares about him. But, yeah. like, in terms of, like, carrying over his characteristics, yeah. no, 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 they're, they're fine. We're fine without them. Yeah. So what did you think of Penny? I liked Penny most when she was interacting with Baz. Yeah, I thought that I thought that she and her family were were really interesting. Actually, I thought all of the 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 dynamics with younger children were really fascinating because of the way that the older siblings are always so annoyed with how bratty their younger siblings are. Like no matter what no matter whether you think that you are all going to be annihilated in the next couple days by some kind of monster who's out to destroy magic, it is still so annoying when your younger sibling comes in the room without knocking on the door. I think that that's really funny. <laughs> so I, yeah, so I like Penny. I really love the fact that there's like no romantic tension between her and Simon and the fact that at the end, when when we come to learn that Simon is causing the humdrum, all she wants is to just take Simon and go. And it's not a like, we can, we can build a life together, you and I. It's not a like, there's a place for us kind of situation. It's just a like, I care about you so much. I need to, I need to take you somewhere safe because you're my friend. Yeah, I really, I really like that. I like that she is so much of her own person, which is like hugely due to the fact that we get to hear from her perspective. I think that's really great. And I like, I like that the things that she's good at and the ways in which she is smart are specific and identifiable, Mm -hmm. or they are like manifest in specific and identifiable ways. So the fact that when Simon and Baz are trying to figure out who killed Natasha, Simon is like, okay, let's do what Penelope does and start with what we know and then with what we don't know. Um, and it's that kind of thing that like, oh, well, when Penelope is around, we make lists yeah. and lists are very helpful. Yeah. You can identify what you know and what you don't know. Could you just fucking chill for like five minutes? Cat has no chill. Yeah, I love that. I love that, that Penelope like offers people methods for dealing with problems and that like one thing that she means to both you know, Simon, who loves her blindly and unconditionally, which is so sweet, and Baz, who, like, respects her, mm-hmm. um, both both of them see her as somebody who, like, when we're in a crisis, we will go to Penelope because she will figure out what to do next mm-hmm. because she is logical, like, m- methodical and level-headed and also ruthless Mm -hmm. like that is a characteristic that Baz actually attributes to her a number of times like the sense that once she wants to accomplish something she will carry through with bulldogged determination and that's what will get her 
to sort of where she needs to be, that she will not give up when things get hard. Mm -hmm. I agree. I also really like her relationship with Baz. And I think one of the things that I really enjoy about how Penelope gets to exist in this book that isn't quite how Hermione gets to exist is that Penelope, while she is in a romantic relationship, that is entirely off screen. Mm -hmm. And her relationship to none of the other characters is defined by romance, which means that she gets to be this like amazing friend and ally and and like sometimes enemy this cat is like just a real mouth breather (laughs) no chill no chill yeah and i feel like that combined with the fact that she gets to actually narrate some of her own chapters means that she gets to sort of step forward as this even more fully articulated, like richly drawn and interesting and exciting character. And that like the ability to really see Baz and Simon and Penelope, who are like, I think, unarguably like the most important and the most interesting characters in the book to get to see them all as like fully drawn, interesting people who have all kinds of concerns and preoccupations that are like outside of their relationships with each other as well mm-hmm. is like a really lovely touch to how to how in particular to how the women in this book are drawn that they get to be really sort of fully existent characters. That just reminded me of how I don't understand but I appreciate and love the fact that Penelope insists on being friends with Agatha even after Agatha and Simon break up. And when Penelope is like, I only have two friends. <laughs> if I'm not friends with you, I only have one friend. And he's going to die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that even after Agatha moves to California, Penelope, like, I love the fact that Penelope is the type of friend who is just like, I'm, I'm going to put work into this friendship because yeah. it is so easy to like, just, just, just go. Just go start over. It's great. Yeah, I think that that is a really cool and admirable characteristic of hers. In this final segment, in lieu of the traditional final revisions, we instead are going to plug back in our season two conclusion stuff. So let's start off with the Tri Witches Tournament! This week's Tri Witches Challenge was to make something uncomfortable or make it awkward um, and not just uh, do the thing that we so often are encouraged to do, which is. Mm, just ignore it and it'll go away um just refuse so just refusing to go along with something yeah. that sucks like a microaggression directed at you or at others oh my god i saw the this feminist scholar i follow on twitter was talking about a moment where she sort of intervened in a conversation you know doing just this uh and was told that she was being deliberately difficult and she understood the spirit of the conversation just mm just Mm. infuriating anyway Mm. so we've got as per usual two particular uh tweets that we're going to make reference to so the first one is from tea books and chocolate or at tea and books 16 tea books and chocolate is a great really really great Mm -hmm. username it's very it's very soothing who says 
called myself out for an accidental microaggression and apologized to my friend, owning my own awkward and fallibility. I really, really liked this one because, you know, we are also the people who say shit. And also, if we want a culture in which you can pause when somebody has said or done something shitty and say, like, I actually need you to think about why that was shitty, then Mm -hmm. in order to foster that culture, we need to be willing to be called out like that ourselves by other people Mm -hmm. or to do some of that work on ourselves as well. Um, And I think the more that we do it ourselves and model to people that it's like totally okay and not the end of the world and that you can sort of graciously accept those moments and like move on relationships intact, I think that's Mm -hmm. really going to help to sort of produce a larger culture in which we can pause and say to somebody like, hey, actually that that word you just used i find that word really hurtful mm-hmm. and now let's move forward you know yeah we're fine and and yeah. i i think i think that that moment of like you do that thing so that you can move mm-hmm. forward is the really important part because i think like the important distinction to make between calling yourself out for a thing that you have just done that's very different from like getting in touch with your peers in high school who maybe you said shitty things to and apologizing to them because that's different that's you wanting to atone for a thing that maybe that person doesn't need to that person has the right to not give you atonement yeah don't do that yeah um you can like you you just gotta like sit in that regret and do better in the future (laughs) this feels (laughs) this is coming from a very dark and personal place (laughs) sometimes i am like Sometimes I am unable to sleep at night because I think about all of the like stupid or shitty things that I said when I was in high school. And I regret those things. But I know from a friend of mine, I won't mention this person by name, but um, this friend of mine is queer and was very visibly queer Mm -hmm. in high school, even before they were out. And as a result, had a really hard time with a lot of our classmates and peers Mm -hmm. and dealt with a lot of microaggressions and a lot of macroaggressions and not that long ago was contacted by a high school classmate who wanted to apologize for Mm. all of the like shitty homophobic things that um that he said to my friend during high school Mm -hmm. and my friend was like like fuck you like I don't want to forgive you for that you made my life hell in high school fuck off yeah go forward and be better Yeah. So that's another reason why I really like the idea of like in the moment you like take that opportunity to be like the thing that I just said is violent or aggressive or hateful and I'm going to own that and apologize for it and move on. Also, it's scary. It's scary to like be a person in the world who wants to be a good person and you're afraid you're going to hurt people's feelings and you will. Yeah. Yeah. I think abandoning the idea that you get to move through the world without hurting anyone ever. I think that's a thing that we need to really, really quickly get rid of that desire for some form of purity Mm -hmm. and not get rid of it in the form of being like, well, it's impossible not to offend people. So I'm just going (laughs) to give up. But get rid of it in the sense that it's like, I have not failed as a human being when I... Mm -hmm when I say something that hurts someone, like mm-hmm. we can move through this. The, this is what a friend of mine recently referred to this as the anatomy of an apology. Name the violence mm-hmm. that you did and then mm-hmm. name the way in which you are going to try to avoid doing it again in the future. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know what? Surprisingly straightforward and yet can mm-hmm. be real hard. Yes, very hard. 
A, which is, this is Hannah dropping in real quick to say that uh, the version of this podcast you're listening to right now is a little different from the original one that we recorded. We've gone back and taken out a piece of a conversation that we realized in retrospect was offensive. Uh, I'm adding this note in both in the spirit of um, acknowledging that this happens sometimes with the podcast, that when listeners reach out to us and tell us that something that we said was hurtful, we do want to honor that. And sometimes the way to honor that is to go back and make changes to the episode. But we also want to acknowledge it here as a means of staying accountable. And because on the topic of this, uh, this conversation, it's important to say, like, we screw up, we listen, we are continuing to try to, uh, to always just, you know, be a little bit better every day. Um, so thanks again to the listener who reached out to us and, uh, back to the episode. Um, do you want to read the second one? I do. So the second one that we chose is from Joanna, AKA at no kidding genius. (laughs) Um, Joanna tweeted, confronted a prof who ignored requests to include content warnings in syllabus. Didn't budge, but neither will I. And then the like strong arm, muscle arm emoji. Flex emoji. Yeah. We chose this one as the second one we wanted to shout out because sometimes we, sometimes we do that, make it awkward or make it uncomfortable or call it out and it doesn't work. Um, and that's okay. I mean, it's not okay that that person still sucks. Mm-hmm. The point is to to do it. The point is to keep having the conversations, keep resisting, keep pushing back. And in moments when it doesn't seem to be working, to, to try not to just get discouraged and give up, right? Because... Mm-hmm. Maybe five more students will have a conversation with this professor in the future and they'll eventually get the message and it's going to be Mm -hmm. critical mass that does it. Or maybe the next professor you have this conversation with will budge or may like, you know, Mm -hmm. we don't we don't know and we can't predict the ways in which these kinds of gestures and interventions are actually going to have impact in the world like you can't Mm -hmm. it's sort of like another version of that like you can't call on somebody to forgive you right like you can't do these things exclusively because you expect them to have particular impacts right Mm -hmm. you you do Mm -hmm. it anyway and it might work and it might not and you do it anyway because it's the right thing to do just like that ben fold song do it anyway. Just sing, just hum me a few bars. Uh, uh, I'm so bad at I'm recalling so music on on the spot. Necessities, the no, that, not, that's not it. That's a different song. It's also about doing it anyway, though. Oh yeah, I just wanted to give yeah, one final, one more, yeah. just little, just a little shout out to uh, uh, Shelby Lynn Hansen, aka at Huff Puffs Helb. Probably Huff Puff Shelb. Yeah, sorry, aka at Huff Puff Shelb. <laughs> Oh, reading is hard. Hashtag no tall men. Mm-hmm. Oh, who just said uh, I was fueled with feminist rage this evening and decided to call out ignorance on Tinder. I just want to encourage any of you who are on Twitter to go and read the screen caps of <laughs> their responses to people on Tinder because it is real A plus feminist killjoy work. All right. New challenge. So inspired by the new school year, we thought that a fun new challenge might be to find a teachable moment in your day to day 
lives. Um, and so this might be an opportunity similar to this past fortnight where mm -hmm. you um, take an opportunity to either call somebody else out or call yourself out to acknowledge those microaggressions and move forward. But it might also be another opportunity to turn something that might seem benign into a teachable moment. Mm -hmm. um, maybe a good example. I actually, this is me uh, acknowledging my own failure. This would have been like a really prime example of a teachable moment because it was as I was uh, setting up the computer in my classroom and I overheard one of my students use the term such and such is my spirit animal and I was about to intervene and then I didn't. And I really regret not doing that. Mm -hmm. I really regret not making that a teachable moment and saying, mm -hmm. actually, interesting fact, spirit animal is not an acceptable term for people to use very casually, tossing it around. I think I just, yeah. I didn't feel prepared to like yeah. explain why it wasn't okay. I was just like, we don't use that word anymore. Yeah. Stop it. I have exactly the same approach to beginning the teachable moment, um, which is very like, did you know, like, <laughs> fun fact about the thing you just said. <laughs> I was at an academic event maybe a month ago or so, and uh, a woman referred to being the low man on the totem pole. Ooh. And I was like, you know, I have an interesting anecdote about that saying, which is like based in a, in a really settler misunderstanding of totem poles and how they signify. And I, I heard this from, I believe it was Lee Miracle I heard say it in a talk, who was talking mm -hmm. about like how that exemplifies the way that settlers think about hierarchies and assume that mm. um, a position of power means that you're crushing everybody else and standing mm -hmm. up on their shoulders. But actually, like if you want to think about the roles of the people on the totem pole, like it's not a hierarchy, but the person at the bottom is in a very important position. You get on the bottom of the totem pole because you are strong enough to hold everybody mm -hmm. else up. Um, and that's a really honored position. And so, like, mm -hmm. isn't that interesting the way we have this saying that really exemplifies all of the ways in which, like, Western culture fundamentally misunderstands this, like, major form of indigenous iconography? Like, isn't that neat? <laughs> Fun fact. Fun fact. colonialism <laughs> impacts our language. Fun. Oh such a fun fact yeah so so find your teachable moments and uh and when you do tweet at us about them using the hashtag try witches and now it's time for which please tell me take it away todd which please which please make it make sense to me because a muggle in me just wants to know oh, oh. Which please, which please make it make sense to me Because a muggle in me just wants to know You always ask really great questions. I think that's probably where I would like to start. And sometimes the questions that we choose are things that we've talked about before. But this just provides us with like a really great opportunity to like crystallize those conversations and draw in those conversations that we've that we've had or that we've seen or that we've we've retweeted and uh, and put them in the official which please canon, if you will. So um, this week's question comes from Esme, whose Twitter handle, Hannah, you pronounced. Oh, I pronounced it. Uh, Patroclus. Great. Patroclus. I mean, I don't even know if I pronounced Esme correctly. I don't know how to say words. So 
Esme's question is basically wanting to know what our thoughts are on um, the matter of non-binary magic users at Hogwarts. So I'm just going to read a couple of these tweets. Esme says, I believe a common term used instead of witch or wizard is wix, W-I-X, which is often used neutrally in Wiccan circles as far as I can tell, and then clarifies I'm not Wiccan, just a curious observer, so I may be wrong. But in Harry Potter, the terms witch and wizard are clearly gendered. For example, school of witchcraft and wizardry as though the two are different somehow. The term Wix allows fans to write fic with uh, non-binary inclusion and often involves secret neutral dorms and unrealistically accepting profs. Opinions on scope for such reading within the canon. And then, one last point, for the record, I take great comfort in these fics and headcanons, but I'm curious about your thoughts on the heavily binary and gendered structure of Hogwarts and the HP world in general. So this is one of those questions where I don't mean this as a burn. I mean this entirely enthusiastically, and I champion this question. This is such an obvious question to, to ask. Like, these are questions we should be asking about this series. I think the thing that I just want to get out of the way is that Rowling is obviously writing from the perspective and the worldview that like sex is a binary and gender is a binary and that those two things are linked and that they are natural. And so now I've said that we can just we can just put that aside like yeah, okay, great. Everybody gets it. Rolling has a limited perspective. Fine. Now we can move on and have a more interesting conversation. Um <laughs> Uh-oh, now we have to have a more interesting conversation. Now that I've set us up. <laughs> so one of the things that, that came to mind right away is that um, refusing the naturalization of a sex and gender binary then means that we can think about how Hogwarts is just another institution like so many other institutions that is taking a socially constructed socially constructed categories and then naturalizing them as essential through the organization of its space. Mm -hmm. So that's like what gendered bathrooms are doing in public schools. Like this is yeah. a, you know, a problem that kids in schools all over the place are encountering that you are forcing children from a very young age to begin mm -hmm. identifying with a gender and moving through space in a way that aligns with that, you know, and you can kind of think of what Hogwarts does as similar like Hogwarts forces you to identify with one of two genders and then uses both the organization of space and then a, a sort of magical policing of that organization mm -hmm. to strictly enforce those genders, which are like so obviously created by institutions, but then claimed as natural via the way people have to move through those institutions. Mm -hmm. And so I think there absolutely is space to look at Hogwarts and say, you know, it's an old school. It probably has historically policed gender in these ways. That doesn't, one, mean that that's actually what gender is, or two, mean that there isn't a point in Hogwarts, like there will be in all of our institutions, where somebody says, fuck this. Mm -hmm. Like, this is wrong. And, and the space needs to be reorganized and rethought, you know, in light of resistance to the sort of ossified structures. Okay. And I think that building from that, we can also look at the way that the characters have likewise internalized a sex and gender binary as being 
evidence of the ways in which the wizarding world is unable to exist separate from the kinds of socialization that come from the muggle world, right? So like, just as the wizarding world is also structured in terms of nation, like we talked about this, I think with Neil, where he was like, why is Ireland a thing, a thing yeah. in the wizarding world? Um, I think that like, yeah, like similarly, we can say like, well, why is sex and gender a binary? Why yeah. are those binaries in the wizarding world? Yeah. And if we maybe approach it from that lens, we can we can make space for interrogating the existence as being based on the kind of, mm, what did you say the last time about capitalism? The wheel of capitalism <laughs> crushed under the wheel of gender. of gender and of and of misogyny and patriarchy. Yeah, so so i think I think what it is that I'm trying to say is that the fact that gender and sex are binaries at Hogwarts just means that Hogwarts is an institution, as Hannah said, that has absorbed that ideology, right the ideology that that sees only men and women and sees men and women as distinct i mean. Like, I'm, yeah, I would, I would say that, like, perhaps obviously we're like super on board with fan fiction that Mm -hmm. envisions like the idea of Wix identities, non-binary identities, and that, you know, as we've mentioned in this episode and, and in so many other episodes, the incredible limitation of how much of a view of the world we get to see via Harry Mm -hmm. opens up all of these possibilities for us, right? To say like, you know, Harry is as far as the narrative tells us, like a straight cis man whose experience of the gendering of his institutions and the spaces he moves through, like might be one of just like ease, right? Like it just feels easy to him. And so he never attends to it. But like, that isn't to say that there isn't like a radical group of gender queer and gender non-conforming students at Hogwarts who are demanding that these old spells based on like really violent understandings of gender get eliminated and replaced with different ways of organizing student spaces. Yeah. So like that's one particular take on it, right? Which is like Hogwarts is the way that, that we see it and students are going to come along and resist things. And that's a way of sort of imagining that politics play out in Hogwarts the same way they play out in our own world. Right. The other way to think about it is like if it brings us comfort to imagine um, the world of Hogwarts as an already more emancipatory and radical mm-hmm. space to say, like, actually, just it's not the way that it looks in the books. Actually, Hogwarts is a space where gender is not policed in those ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that reading is supported by the texts, mm-hmm. I think, because the way that Rowling wrote these books is based in these really oppressive gender binaries. But like for fuck's sake like imagine imagine the world you want to imagine in the magical fantasy realm that brings you comfort like do it it's great great question thank you don't forget to tweet your questions using the hashtag which please tell me if you want a chance to have them answered on the podcast otherwise we'll just 
retweet them with or without commentary, depending on how much we think we are probably not the experts in that matter, but the other listeners are. Which please, which please make it make sense to me. Because the muggle in me just wants to know. Thank you, dear listeners, for joining us for Season 2, Episode 7 of Witch Please. The rest of our episodes are, as always, available at ohwitchplease.ca. You can also subscribe to us on your podcatcher platform of preference. There was a very long conversation on Twitter recently about all of the different ways that Android users like to get our podcast. And it appears that there's lots and lots and lots of different ways that you can get it. So... Get it. And speaking of things you should get, <laughs> don't forget to check out our merch at society6.com slash ohwitchplease. Um, and of course, there's also a link on our website. If you are the type of person who likes to listen to episodes of Witch Please where Hannah and Marcel go and do things, uh, we would strongly encourage you to check out our GoFundMe, which you can find at gofundme.com slash Send Hannah Marcel to HP World. And each of those words, except HP, has a hyphen or a dash, a dash, a hyphen. It's the same. It's, a, it's actually the same thing. It's the same thing in between them. Magic is wild. <laughs> we are currently at $870 of our $1,500 goal. There are 23 days to go. You can totally do this. The pictures are going to be amazing. And uh, we're really, we are really excited about this. And thank you to Katie Robinson, who created it. You're the best. Special thanks, as always, to Trevor Chow Fraser, our erstwhile tech support, and the robot of our hearts. Hi, how are you doing? So this is, as far as we are aware at this point in time, our penultimate episode. And so we anticipate seeing you again in one fortnight. So until then, later, witches! Great. We did it. Great job. That's it. I'm going to press stop. Okay.